Please stand with me at the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Galatians 2, 15 through 21. The Holy Spirit is speaking to you today because He loves you. Verse 15 says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus, in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You may be seated. Lately, at least our country, in large part, has been fixated on the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. He's that teenage boy who carried an AR-15 to a riot and ended up shooting three people, two of whom died. I'm not here to make any kind of statement about um, politics or, or really what, what Kyle did or what the, the case found. But Maybe you were like me and you were in suspense hearing all the arguments, all the evidence being put forward, and then waiting. It seemed like forever for the jury to come back and give a ruling on whether Kyle's self-defense claims were going to free him. You think about If you've seen the video of Kyle Rittenhouse, who consistently has said that he was not guilty, that he was acting in self-defense, he was, I'm sure, fully confident of that, and yet his whole life was in the hands of a handful of people who may disagree with him. And so the moment came when he had to stand and await judgment. And the jury came back and said he was not guilty on all charges. And there's that scene where Kyle collapses in relief because he didn't know what they were going to say. Last week, in 
the book of Galatians, Paul confronted the apostle Peter in verse 14. When Peter was acting inconsistent with the gospel that says we are accepted by God based upon Christ, and Peter started acting like he could do things to, to make himself acceptable to God. He was leading others to believe that. And Paul confronted Peter and said, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? How can you try to make other people keep the laws of God as if that's going to make them acceptable? What he's doing in verses 15 through 21 is right in line, is following up what, what he was doing last week with Peter. He is taking Peter to court for his behavior. That's why we have court language, like, like the word justice. But here it's justify five times in these verses. Three times just in verse 16. Verse 17, you've got the language of a judgment being rendered in the word found. Found guilty or found not guilty. He's bringing Peter to court. Beloved, I'm here to tell you he's bringing you and me to court. There is a day when we will all stand in the presence of God the judge. You will do it. And all the evidence of your life will be put forward. And you will be waiting for the verdict. And let me tell you the facts. You and I are guilty. We are lawbreakers before God. And there is a day when you will hear the answer from that judge. Whether you have done enough good in your life to escape hell and enter into heaven. And you haven't. That won't be announced by a jury of your peers because all of them will be standing behind you waiting their turn as defendants. It is a holy judge who has seen everything. Every thought, every action, every word. And the truth is, you and I are guilty. This is why you should listen very closely when we go through this passage. Because even though that's true, you do not have to pay for your crimes. But you need to understand this. In God's court, only faith in Christ can justify lawbreakers. We're all lawbreakers, but in God's court, and this is a sermon in a sentence, in God's court, only faith in Christ can justify lawbreakers. Justify, we, we read this earlier, it's, it's a legal term when the judge passes sentence. When he gives his verdict, he will only say not guilty to people who've placed their faith in Christ. And that will be a moment that is better than the moment that Kyle Rittenhouse experienced this week. The title of the sermon is better than not guilty. Better than not guilty. 
Because, point number one, our defense rests on Christ. Our defense rests on Christ. Look back in verse 15. We ourselves, Paul says, talking about him and Peter, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know, Peter, don't you know this, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we, Peter, you know this and I know this. We have also believed in Christ Jesus in order that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified, Peter, and you know it. Paul is not saying that he's not a sinner, that Peter's not a sinner just because they're Jewish. He brings in the law, all of the Old Testament commands of how we're to live before God. And he says to Peter, we're Jews. That means we are the people in the world who have God's law. The Gentiles are sinners in this sense. They never even had a chance to hear about the rules of righteousness. And Paul says, you know, the law, it taught us how to live. But verse 16 says. No one will be justified by working the law. Here, Paul is quoting. David in Psalm 143. Psalm 143, verse two, this is where. David is praying to God and he says, hear my pleas for mercy. He's asking God for mercy and not justice. And he says in verse 2, do not enter into judgment with your servant. This is David, the man after God's own heart. Arguably the most righteous person in, in the Old Testament. Don't judge me for No one living is righteous. That is what David says. So Paul says to Peter, the Old Testament law told us. We know no one is righteous before God. We know no one is not guilty before God. Not only not guilty, right? Not not only the absence of sin, but that's not the standard God. It's not just that your life would be absent of sin, like zero sins. God's standard is perfect righteousness. A life filled with only doing all the right things for all the right reasons. David's understanding, Paul's understanding, Peter's understanding is no one, and God told us so, no one meets that standard. He is admitting to being a sinner. So listen, church, there is no category of person who is not sinful, who is not guilty. No one is not guilty in God's court. Christians are sinners. If David, Paul, Peter are sinners, pastors are sinners, missionaries are sinners. What he's saying is, look, we had we had the law. What that means is, you cannot be sinless just by being informed. 
just because you have access to the information that says what's sin and what's not, will not make you sinless. It's an advantage to know what's right and wrong. But you have a heart and I have a heart that when we know what's wrong, we will do that. Sin is at work in us. This is how deep our problem is. Sin keeps us from doing the works of God. And Paul's making a point to Peter and to us. The law is there to show us that we cannot be right before God on our own. Because all of us break His rules. You will not be sinless before God. You will not be righteous before God just because you have information. Information doesn't result in justification. So children, what this means, what was true of Peter and Paul being born into the right family who had the right information did not save them. And you... Receiving from God the extraordinary grace of your parents taking you to church will not save you. You doing your devotional every day will not save you. Just having the information will not guarantee justification. Because the standard is perfect righteousness. And don't you know You have not always told the truth. Children, haven't you wanted something that someone else had? That's breaking God's law. And have you taken anything that did not belong to you? You are guilty before God. And all those good things that you you have done, if you didn't do it all for Him, you're guilty for breaking His law. We're all guilty. And we're not just facing what Kyle was facing, a life in prison. This judge is going to send people to eternal life in hell. I want to Explain just how significant this point is for all of us to understand. Another word for justify, which is found three times in the, in verse 16 alone, to declare righteous or not guilty. Another word for that is acquit. And you, you may know that from another famous trial. That word acquit. At least if you're my age, you do. If the glove don't fit, you must acquit. O.J. Simpson was not found guilty for killing his wife because the glove that was used in the murder did not fit on his hand. And the idea is, If O.J. could not have used that glove, then he cannot be guilty. 
Kyle Rittenhouse, his defense rested not on a glove, but his defense rested on on self-defense, that he was justified, and this is what the jury found, that he was justified for using deadly force based on all the evidence. Verse 16, I'm going to go get some grammar for you. This should bless the homeschoolers here. Uh, and the rest of you all explain what grammar means. Um, verse 16 is full of instrumental prepositions. Prepositions. That's that word by and through. Those are prepositions. And instrumental means these words by and through are talking about an instrument or a tool. Look at this in verse 16. Pay attention to the grammar. A person is not justified by works of the law. If that's what the tool you're using, works of the law, you will not be found not guilty. But through faith in Jesus Christ, you can be justified. If that's the tool you're reaching for, if that's the instrument you're using to bring about a not guilty faith in Christ, well, then you can be justified. In verse 16, justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. What he's saying is kind of a a reverse situation to the, if the glove don't fit, you must acquit. But what I mean is, if you use the wrong tool, you can't get the right verdict. There's only one tool that can be used in the courtroom of God for you to be found not guilty. And what he's saying is, if you are thinking about what you've done for God, if you have done good enough for God, that will be the the right justification tool for no one. It will not work for anyone. And so many people that I talk to face to face, when I ask them the question, what is your hope for heaven in? And they start telling me the things they've done. Read very closely verse 16. No, it will work for no one. But there is one tool that can get you acquitted in God's court. There is one defense that always works. Our defense must rest on Christ. In God's court, only faith in Christ can justify lawbreakers and always faith in Christ will justify lawbreakers. So let me invite everyone here, young and old, children, today can be the day that you are justified. This is looking forward to a final day when we all face God, but you can be justified now in confidence for that day. When you hear about the goodness of God, that should remind you, the point of it is to show how not good you are. And then when you hear about how great the Lord Jesus is, that He was perfectly righteous, that He died for sinners, that He was raised from the dead to save anyone who believes in Him, that should make you run from yourself and flee to Christ. 
and rest on him. And you will get a relief that's very different than what Kyle was facing this week. He was convinced that he was not guilty. You can know you're guilty and rest and have utter relief if your defense rests on Christ alone. What Paul is talking about in Galatians 2, 15 through 21 is that what Jesus offers us is better than a not guilty verdict. It's better than a not guilty verdict. Not only because our defense rests on something better than our own works, it rests on Christ. But secondly, Christ didn't just take our judgment. This is better than a not guilty verdict because Christ did not just take our judgment. I want you to see again in verse 17, the language of the the courtroom. If we are found to be sinners, if we are found guilty before God, what these two verses in particular, 17 and 18, can be confusing when you read them. So let me try to explain it this way. What Paul is talking about is in the moments of Peter's life, that Paul recorded in verses 11 through 14. Whenever Paul walks up on Peter, who's eating a ham sandwich with a bunch of uh, Gentiles, and then he tosses that Sammy into the bush just because he sees the circumcision party coming and he's afraid that he'll be seen to be guilty for eating ham. When he's denying that Christ makes us righteous and starts acting like we can be acceptable by our obedience before God. What he's doing is he is rebuilding what he already tore down. He, like Paul, is preaching, you can't be acceptable by your obedience. Now when you're acting like you're accepted by your obedience and that other people are not accepted because they're disobedience, you're rebuilding what you tore down by relying on the works of the law. And he says, if you do that, Christian, listen to me, If you do that, if you pray a prayer, if you confess Christ, but then you spend your life basing your acceptance before God on what you have done, you will be found guilty in that court. Because that's what your life is resting on. It's resting on you. I'm going to put it this way, and I hope it's helpful. No one who enters a plea of not guilty will hear not guilty from God. No one who who acts like, God, you should accept me because of this, 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 and this in my life. No one who says, I can do it. No one who enters a plea, I'm not guilty, will ever hear not guilty from God. But everyone who pleads guilty, I'm guilty, but also pleads Christ, will be declared not guilty before God. I'm guilty, and God's Son died for the guilty. I'm trusting Him.
And God will say, not guilty. So I want to, I want to caution you. If you're professing to follow Jesus, I want to caution you from a self-defense kind of posture. A posture that defends yourself as if you are righteous whenever anyone accuses you of anything. I, I want to I acknowledge that that's very common in the world for people to defend themselves, to say, no, but I did this. No, you're not seeing how good I am. And say that that should be foreign to Christians. I want to encourage you to adopt a posture, if you don't have it already, of not defending yourself. Don't get ticked off when people accuse you, even if they're wrong. Stop every suggestion in your life that you are innocent. Don't rebuild what the gospel tears down. Because you will be found guilty. Everyone who seeks to be justified and declare righteous by faith in Christ alone, we have all entered a plea of guilty. I'm guilty. You saying I'm guilty does not throw me off. You seeing my sin does not make me want to defend myself. Paul is saying in verses 17 and 18 is what every Christian must believe is without Christ, I am guilty and only guilty. But then he turns in verse nine and he turns away from the idea of being without Christ. And he says, but in Christ, I died to the law and in Christ, I live for God. And verse 20 in Christ. He lives in me. Look Again, in verse 20. I have been crucified. As I died on the cross with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. There is just so much in verse 20. And because I love you, I'm going to give you a good bit of it. I want you to, this is the language in verse 20 of substitutionary atonement. That's another theological term, substitutionary atonement, that a substitute stood between me and God to make atonement, to make me right with God. And what I want you to consider this morning is just how the ideas of substitutionary atonement, they are in the beginning of the Bible, they're all throughout the Bible, But when we get to Jesus actually doing it, it's far better than we ever would have realized. So it it starts way back in Genesis chapter 3. The very first gospel presentation was in Genesis 3 verse 15. Whenever God promises to Adam and Eve, I will send a son who will defeat your enemy for you. Your sin, your death, and, and, and Satan. A substitute has to come. You can't save yourself. It has to be someone else. So we get this idea of a substitute. But then it's not until Leviticus 16, a little later, that we're told that the substitute has to die. 
in order to save. And he specifically has to die because we're sinners. It's not just about the bad guys out there, sin, death, and Satan. It's about our guilt before God. We need a sacrifice to stand in our place because God is righteous and we've not been righteous, so we must die. Someone has to die. And then we get to Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. And we learn more. That not only must the substitute die because we're sinful in order to beat our enemies for us, he has to not stay dead. We're told that this substitute will be judged in our place, will be cut off from the land of the living. He's going to die for the sins of his people, even though he makes very clear he must have done no violence, no deceit is found in his mouth. We're not looking at his Instagram account and finding anything. Nothing to condemn him. He's perfectly righteous, yet he's going to die. And when his soul makes an offering for our guilt, he will live. So we can know just from the Old Testament. But then this idea of the substitute in Galatians 2 verse 20. Not only will he defeat our enemy, you can't do it, but there will be someone who can Not only must he die to do it because you're a sinner before God. Not only must he die and then be raised. But Galatians 2 adds this extra thing. That our substitute who did all of that did it because he loved us. And not only that, this is so much better than not guilty. The one who stood in our place loved us, and now he lives inside of us. Don't you love the Bible? Let me encourage you to devote your life to listening to what God says about his son. Christian, Christ did not just die for a nameless world full of sinners. His death was very personal. Paul turns from the we language to the me language in verse 20. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself on the cross for me. Christian, You can say that. Jesus Christ loved me personally. And He gave Himself when He was dying on the cross for my sins specifically. That's what kind of Savior God has given the world. And He is assuring you That so long as Christ is your one defense, that you're resting in Him alone, you're not bringing any other evidence, you're not trying to help Him out with the good things that you have done, but you're resting on Him alone, fully accepting that you're guilty before God. If that's what you are doing, then God will not demand your blood for your guilt. It's very personal. 
When you stand in that moment before God and the judge hands, hands down the verdict, what will happen for you if you are resting in Christ alone is he will count Christ's death for your death. And he will count Christ's life for your life. And you will be found righteous before him. Paul's given the language of living by faith. That, that, that means Christians are those people who live like what Jesus did for sinners happened to you. I died to the law, through the law. The, the law was calling for my death, and when Christ died for me, because I believe in Him, I died to the law. It killed me. And the old me is gone. And now I live. And Christ lives in me. Because Christ was raised from the dead, and I believe in Him, I have a new life too. And it's the life of Christ. Faith, believing in Jesus, unites us with Jesus. You've got you to get this. In the eyes of God, those who believe in His Son are united to His Son. Such that the judge will not, cannot consider your case. Count your works without counting Christ's for you. God will not separate you from His Son. Martin Luther said this, when the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death and hell, we ought to say this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. God will not separate you from his son if you believe in his son. And what Paul is saying in verse 20, you got to get the rest of this, is you better not separate anything in your life from his son. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Christ is living in me. There is nothing in my life that I'm separating from God's Son because God is not separating me from His Son. He died for me. I will live for Him. Verse 20 corrects so many mistakes in the Bible Belt about Christianity. Mistakes you've heard. Mistakes maybe you've believed. Mistakes you're tempted to believe. Faith is for all of life. Christianity is an all of life experience. Do you see it in verse 20? Do you see Paul talking about this being all-consuming? There is no such thing as being a Christian for an hour a week. It has never existed. There's no such thing as being a Christian for a day a week. There is no such thing as being a Christian in public, but denying Christ by our life in private. That is not a Christian, and it, there never was such a thing as a Christian like that. Being a Christian means all of life. Paul views his life. I live all my life, the rest of my life, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christian. We have to have this perspective. 
I'm not just talking to people who are deceived thinking they're Christians. I'm talking to you as a Christian. I'm talking to me as a Christian. Let's have Paul's perspective here. You've got to view, and I've got to view, every moment of my life in these terms. The Son of God became a man and used all of His life all the way to death for me. And I will do that for Him. I'm alive to God because I died to the law, he says. We are to live to God, for God. Every, everything directed at God by faith in Christ. Christians, you should pray for, you should discipline yourself to live with a Christ consciousness. To be conscious of Him. To be thinking of Him all the time. That's what Paul is saying here. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. That means we live our life moment by moment, filling it with love for Him. Thinking of Him. Serving Him. I'm doing this for Him. I'm doing what He wants. What do you want, Lord? I will do it for you. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to live by faith. And when we sin... We say, well, I'm not going to be accepted by God on my obedience. I will trust Him to save me. And I will now live for Him and turn from that sin. In God's court, only faith in Christ can justify lawbreakers. What Jesus has done for those who believe is better than giving us a not guilty verdict. Third and finally, and I'll do this briefly, comes from verse 21. This is where Paul tells us that the verdict that God gave or gives to Christians is gracious. Look at the end of verse 21 first and how he says the cross is crucial. The cross is crucial. He's saying, you can't obey God's law. I can't obey God's law. I should have. That's what life really is. But because I cannot obey God's law, I cannot be righteous in God's sight through my works of His law. His verdict of not guilty is gracious. It's what we don't deserve. It's better than what we deserve. And that's the purpose for why Christ died. Because He's going to save by grace. Your perspective of your acceptance before God has to have grace written all over it. I don't deserve salvation before God. He should not accept me, but He does in Christ. That's why He died. Paul says then, I won't annul grace. I think he's wrapping up his address to Peter where he's saying, the reason I confronted Peter Because he was nullifying grace. He was canceling it out. It's like people annul a marriage. You understand this concept where people go before a judge and say, I know we took vows. I know we made commitments. But I want you to treat me like I was making a mistake and not hold me to my vows. And the judge will say, okay, it's annulled. I won't treat you like you're married. And Paul is saying, I'm not going to annul the grace of God in my salvation or I'm not getting any salvation at all. Don't do that, Peter. 
Don't do that, Christian. Don't do anything that draws attention to you and your salvation, to your ability, to your goodness. Don't do it because you will be annulling grace. That's what you're doing, Peter, when you do that. I won't do it. I do not nullify the grace of God by resting on my righteousness or relying on my obedience. What is better than not guilty? It's a gracious judge who gives a verdict based upon someone else's works. We have not kept the law. And everyone who trusts in Christ is righteous before God. In God's court, only faith in Christ can justify lawbreakers. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would make us a people who don't just hear it, who don't just have information, but who actually receive justification, who believe what we've heard, who forsake our good, our goodness as if that's a basis for your acceptance, who turn away from thinking that you're impressed in any way with anything we've done. Only by grace will we be saved, by a gift from you through the death of your Son. We pray that our lives will be filled with affection for you as our judge, Christ as our advocate and substitute. And we would live by faith in the one who loved us and gave himself up for us. We pray this in his name. Amen.